Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome to the show. We are sponsored by AgorasNexus.com and Vandalay Industries in New York, New York, Latex Import Export. Talk to Art, great guy. Uh, before we get started here, I've got some funny stuff queued up for you. Christopher has not seen this yet. I'm excited to show him this great video, this bro, a couple of bros. This is what the, the what these fucks they they don't they don't expect this kind of uh, action to happen at a city council meeting, and of course I believe this is in California, uh, of all places. But go ahead, uh, Angel, if you wouldn't mind, roll that tape. This this will uh, make you feel good. Uh, what up? My name is Chad Kroger. Um, council, when I'm bummed, I party, and uh, I feel better for a while. The party's really sick, though. I feel better for longer. A lot of ragers have made me feel really stoked. Keggers at my buddy Danny's, phone parties, and bottle service at Hakkasan. The ragers that truly make my froth peak, though, and this is beyond debate, are on a boat. Nothing feels as legit as being on a yacht deck with a linen shirt open. My body tight from a pre-vacay juice cleanse. What a freaking boost. One thing that bums me out, though, is that not everyone gets to participate. Why is it that only people like P. Diddy, Jeff Bezos, and my Uncle Ron get to experience the euphoria of being on a yacht. I think I have the solution. We need public yachts. My Uncle Ron. 60 to 120 foot boats that can be borrowed like books from the library. The boat borrowers would have to do a lot of paperwork, which will blow, but I think it's necessary. With the public yacht program, our countrywide malaise would get sprayed by, away by jet ski Thank water. You, Thank you, Next speaker, are you JT Parr? What up, Council? I am J.T. Parr. Chad is not exaggerating when he says that partying on a boat can benefit your soul. I suffer from anxiety. I often worry that my dad thinks I'm a whiner, but those worries disappear when I jump off a yacht's tuna tower. That's why Chad, who is too modest to include... What is your name? Anyway. Uh, what up? My name uh, uh, Chad Kroger. What a legend going up to L.A. City Council and throwing it down. Want to rent yachts like, you know, like, like library <laughs> books. Um, I, I'm behind this idea. If we're going to spend money on anything, let's roll it out. I just like how let's it goes. Roll it out. What up, Council? <laughs> <laughs> Total lack of respect. <laughs> it's beautiful. Uh, it's beautiful. I, I, I thought that that was fantastic. So. I hope everybody had a good, for those of you who are in the United States of America, where the majority of our audience comes from, I hope you had an enjoyable Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, I, did see, um, I did see a lot of people post pictures of their turkey on social media. Uh, they look great. Uh, they, everybody looks like they had an abundance, and I'm happy to hear that. Not one photograph of Waldorf salad. And that no. is never a problem. That's encouraging. That is encouraging. This is we're happy. That I mean, if you didn't hear Today our prank, I brought apples and mayonnaise to the party. <laughs> <laughs> oh my oh, god! It's, it's the new peanut butter and jelly apples yeah. and mayonnaise. <laughs> Meanwhile, the rest of us fried all this delicious bacon to go inside a bacon dip with hand shredded fucking kabat vermont white cheddar cheese mixed it in like spent all this time making a good fucking dip and this motherfucker brings some apples and some mayonnaise to the fucking yeah. party 
What the fuck? Your baking dip was delightful. Would you like to share recipes? (laughs) (laughs) I can't. I'll give you my recipe for the apples and (laughs) mayonnaise. Oh. Now that my grandma's died, I can give you my fucking yeah. <laughs> my bacon the, six my, my family's legacy must continue. I gotta <laughs> share the recipe for the apples and mayonnaise. <laughs> and then you hear it all started when she was working as a as a in a diner at the Waldorf Astoria. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's in New York, and you're like, oh fuck. Okay, here yeah, here we go. Here, memory lane. Memory <laughs> lane. She puts a dash of paprika in it to spice it up some. Oh, get it out of here. Get it the <laughs> fuck out of here. Um, with the grapes. With the grapes. And again, this is, uh, this is a problem that I have. People put grapes in places they don't belong. <laughs> if you're feeling really brave and the mayonnaise isn't already too spicy for you, Put a little touch of paprika in there if you're feeling adventurous. <laughs> it really spices up and adds a nice zip to the apples and mayonnaise. <laughs> <sighs> I don't know how it happened, Chris. I, I have no idea. But yeah, yeah. we are good. Well, like you said, like it all happened at the Waldorf Astoria. <laughs> I was there slicing some apples and I dropped a slice in the mayonnaise. <laughs> so I figured I'd be brave and I didn't want to throw it out. So I ate it and I said, mm, that's some good apples and mayonnaise. <laughs> I should put mayonnaise on all the apples. <laughs> oh. I know, right? (laughs) I just want to make sure for those of you that are ingesting this gastronomic discussion via the regular podcast, I just want to go ahead and share with the gang. Those of you that are watching on the video, I am showing a photograph of a Waldorf salad. And as you can see, there's there's the apples and mayonnaise (laughs) that fucking celery that's celery cut up apples mayo cream friche sugar and salt Ugh. mayonnaise cream friche is just for people who don't know it's just basically like a um sour cream yeah a fancier version of sour cream like it might be a little bit thicker and you know whatever but it's sour cream do you know what happens when all of this hits the lining of your stomach after going through the stomach acid straight diarrhea i mean this is just yeah every time every time and with and with the walnuts you know chewed up and having some jaggy edges probably bloody diarrhea oh oh my god Waldorf salad, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. We're, what we're going to do, I'm going to make a Cleveland salad. It's going to happen. Mine's already going to right? Well, I was like three day old lettuce, you know, <laughs> a couple of hot dogs chopped some, up. No, 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 hot dogs, some Cleveland bologna. Oh, you're the finest of Italian Yeah, meats. the finest of Italian meats, some Cleveland <laughs> bologna. Cleveland bologna. Oh, man. And will we include mayonnaise in this? No, we will include Cleveland's own 
Stadium mustard. That's the Ugh. that's the salad we're going with here. <laughs> there ain't no grapes in this. This is working class territory here. You know, you stay at the fucking Comfort Inn Express. There ain't no Waldorf Astari out here, okay? <laughs> you know what I mean? You eat out of the vending machine. You put some saltines in there? Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm-hmm. But look at this goddamn salad. I mean, the funny thing is, is I've been thinking about it for a week. Like, I'd eat all those things separately. Just not together. Yeah, no, not together at all. This is this is a concoction from hell, if it exists. <laughs> this is just a disrespect to your stomach and your intestines, your digestive tract. All your fucking that. toilet. Yeah. Your the toilet plumbing. paper, your butthole. I mean, yeah, all of it. The it's whole the, shebang. It's a sin from start to finish. It um, is. It's terrible. So, yeah, so there's the uh, Waldorf salad. Um I'm going to bring awareness to the world about the Waldorf salad because some people will laugh like us and there's others that will need the explanation. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to bring attention to the world for the Waldorf uh, salad to the world. I'm bringing it it to you. So now here's some uh, very interesting news. Uh, The fallout from the crypto situation continues. Uh, The latest being a third crypto boss dies after russian billionaire helicopter crashes it sounds like it's like the final boss like (laughs) in a video game you know like it's the final countdown whatever i don't know that's whatever third crypto boss (laughs) dies after russian billionaire helicopter crashes it's like a video game (laughs) christopher's got the soundtrack going it's europa right that's the name of the band yeah (laughs) yeah the final countdown. Way to go. Way to go, Angel. <laughs> That's I'm good for some it. things. You are. Uh, so here we go. Vyacheslav Taran, 53, the co-founder of trading investing platform Libertex, died after his helicopter mysteriously crashed in a resort town near Monaco. The vehicle plummeted on November 25th afternoon, killing Mr. Taran, who had lived in Monaco for a decade as well as a veteran pilot. Libertex said in a statement is with great sadness that Libertex Group confirms the death of its co-founder and chairman of the board of directors, Vyacheslav Tehran, after a helicopter crash took place en route to Monaco on 25th of November. He is the latest in a growing list of powerful people in Vladimir Putin's Russia to abruptly die. The deaths often reported as suicide have included energy, oil, finance, and shipping bosses, as well as oligarchs and millionaires. The three crypto stars have all died in recent weeks. Uh, uh, Tiantian Kulander, 30, died, in, quote, in his sleep last week, while millionaire Nikolai Mushagin, 29, drowned on a Puerto Rico beach. Mr. Kulander, the co-founder of the Hong Kong-based digital asset company Amber Group, unexpectedly died on November 23rd, hmm. the company said. Mr. Mushigian died only hours after tweeting that he heard the CIA and Mossad, America's and Israel's national intelligence agencies, were going to murder him. Foreshadowing? Probably. How the crash occurred on a day with blue skies as they took off from Lausanne, Switzerland, has raised eyebrows after Mr. Tehran's death. The finance titan was flying with an experienced pilot, 35, in the city on the shores of Lake Geneva after another passenger allegedly canceled last minute. Huh, who was that passenger? And why did they cancel last minute? We would like to know. The single engine heli- light helicopter Eurocopter EC-130 operated by Moncare collided with a hillside near Eze village around 2 p.m. Monaco Life reported. 
Local authorities, as well as Airbus, which manufactured the helicopter, have launched an investigation into his death, which Tarzan was married to, or Tarzan, Jesus Christ, <laughs> Taran, put a Z in there, you Tarzan. Fuck. he's dead, it doesn't matter, he can't get mad at me, was married to Olga Taran, the publisher of the well-known magazine, Hello Monaco, and had three children, who the fuck reads magazines anymore? I mean, I like the format, I just don't see him sold anymore, uh, but anyway, it doesn't matter. I don't know. Uh, that was probably just the front anyway, let's be honest with each other here. Yeah, she works for a magazine. Of course she does. That's where we launder our money. I mean, are mm-hmm. you kidding me here? Um, so what else do we have here? Vyacheslav Taran will be missed more than words can express. I'm sure that he will. So that is the third crypto boss that has uh, bitten the dust. Very interesting. News in this area, as a matter of fact, uh, recently in the United States of America, Yesterday, there was a massive tornado outbreak. Really? I don't know if anybody knew that. I did not. Yes. It's very interesting. Massive tornado outbreak in Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama. Uh, tornado uh, you know, damaged homes, uh, widespread power outages. Uh, residents of Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama took cover. Severe weather sparked at least 35 tornado reports across the states on Tuesday, on, uh, Tuesday and Tuesday night. The violent weather left at least two people dead, seriously injured many others, and destroyed dozens of buildings. Montgomery County Emergency Management Director Christina Thornton confirmed two fatalities, 39-year-old woman and an 8-year-old boy. That's terrible. In the Boylston community of North Montgomery, Alabama, after a tornado touched down. Not Greenbow. Not Greenbow. You know, I hate Jenny from uh, uh, that, that movie. She's a villain. I believe that she is clearly the villain. I'm, I don't. You brought this up, so now I'm thinking about Forrest Gump. I'm sorry. Anytime I hear Alabama, I I think of two things. Number one, Aqua Teen Hunger Force. Okay, where the guy, the the homeless guy, keeps saying, you know, Alabama, Alabama, uh-huh. and Master Shake says, "Oh, what a coincidence! We're conveniently located adjacent to Alabama." Right. And then the second thing I think of is Greenbow, Alabama where Forrest is yelling at Jenny and says, I think you should come home to Greenbow, Alabama. And he looks at that other guy that, like, hit her or something. She's fucking. Yeah. That's the two things I think of. Let me go ahead and say right now that Jenny in that movie is a villain. Yeah. Uh, She is one of the bad guys, 100%. Uh, She uses and abuses a mentally handicapped individual. That is Forrest Gump. That she only decided to finally tie the knot with him when she was all out of options. You see, Jenny got the, uh, what did she get, the hep C or whatever it was. They speculate it's AIDS, but Forrest would have had it too. Because didn't he fuck her after they got married? Or did he just fuck her the tooth that one time and knock her up? I mean, he's a fucking sniper. Like he just got one shot, one kill, and then that's all that's, he was perfectly content with not having sex with his wife who was dying of the HIV or whatever it was at the time. Can you look that up, please? Could you please look that up? I think up? it was hepatitis C, but Was yes. it hep C? But yes. hep C is a sexually transmitted disease as well, right? It's a bloodborne pathogen, is it not? I, I don't know how it works. I don't fuck around. I don't have hepatitis C, so I don't know. That wasn't in question, but I, I appreciate it. No, but, like, I don't know, like, the ins and outs, like, because I don't fucking have it, so, <laughs> you know. Um, it's so, good to know. Yeah. Good to know you don't have it. So let's see. What did Jenny from Forrest Gump have? 
Or what 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 was she sick of? Um and the results are it says it's either AIDS or hepatitis C. Okay. Well, I mentioned both of those. So, like, Forrest apparently didn't knock boots with her. Oh, it says, sorry, right here. The author made it clear that Jenny dies of hepatitis C. She contracted the disease through her drug abuse, and the virus was indeed unknown until 1989. Since the movie is set in the 1980s, it explains why the doctors cannot help her in any way. A little digging shows that the disease can be contracted due to drug use and via blood contact. So, yes. I don't know if it's sexually transmitted, though. Can you look that up? Is hep C sexually transmitted? Let's see what it has to say. I'm curious now. Now we're down the Forrest Gump rabbit hole. Jenny hole. Her dirty hole. Disgusting. Uh, Hep C is transmitted primarily by exposure to blood containing the hepatitis C virus. Current research suggests that if you're in a long-term monogamous relationship with a partner who has Hep C, your risk of contracting Hep C is quite low, unless you also have uh, HIV. (laughs) What a banger of a fucking disease, man. Wow. Okay. It is possible to transmit Hep C sexually although health officials say that the risk is very low. Certain types of sexual activity may increase the risk of hep C transmission. Okay. I'm not going to go into all that because, like, <laughs> I think it's fucking disgusting. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's pretty bad. Look up hep C on your own if you're fucking interested. <laughs> Here's a Cora reply, one of my favorite things to, to view. <laughs> Did Jenna give Forrest Gump AIDS? Um... Let's see here. The son of Forrest Gump, who is also named Forrest, may indeed have contracted the HIV, but now we know that it's the Hep C. I guess we'll never know since they are fictitious characters. <laughs> so in order to leave the ending of the movie as it is, which is dramatic enough, let's just imagine that Jenna had a not contagious disease that she couldn't pass on to anyone. Both Forrest lived happily ever after. You're no fun, Gregory Mustard. What a dickhead. No, she has hep C. AIDS was well known and documented in the 80s. Since hep C spread through blood transfers and drug use, and Jenny is shown to be a heavy drug user and prostitute, obviously she contracted it. And then Mike Hunt, ha ha, I see what you did there, Michael. Mike Hunt, yep, yep. (laughs) His cousin is Barry McCockiner. Get it, you know. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? He's he's a Scottish guy. He's a Scottish guy, you know what I mean? Barry McCockiner. <laughs> yeah, he's from the Highlands in Scotland. You know what I mean? Real big stones. Uh, most likely, she was a manipulative woman who rode the cock carousel. <laughs> That's funny. I've never heard that. The, the cock, cock carousel? carousel? That's a new one. That's a new one, man. If I ever get to insult my ex-wife again, I'm using that. You done riding <laughs> that old cock carousel? You were. <laughs> With, a, with, with, with a long a O. A long O. <laughs> Jer- the Jersey pronunciation. It sounds like Coors. Coors. <laughs> Cock carousel when she hit the wall. She tried to settle down with Forrest, only to lump him up with a kid, which may or may not have been his. The kid probably has AIDS and a bunch of STDs to typical roasties. I don't know what a roastie is. What is a roastie? I don't know. I could do an entire podcast series on Cora replies. 
I've done it before on this show. <laughs> I'm encouraged to do it again because I don't remember you ever doing that. Yeah, we uh, read uh, Cora replies to some of the dumbest shit that I've heard in a while. What is uh, the roasties? What, is, what the hell is that? The roasties. <laughs> Am I reading that correctly? Of course, potatoes come up because that's what I would look up. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Typical roasties. <laughs> is what it, is a roasty? Is it T I E S or T R O A S T I E S? Yeah. What are the comments? Are there clues in the comments? Yeah, I thought this was more close to what actually happened. Roast roasties is a sexist slang used by incels and others in the male internet culture for sexually active women or really just women in general. The slang is based on roast beef curtains, which can <laughs> pronounce an elongated labia to the meats. Oh, I got to write that down. We got the meats. <laughs> <laughs> Roasty is a noun used to describe a woman whose genitals have somehow magically uh, have magically mutilated into an entirely different shape, resemble resembling a sandwich. Due to her having multiple sexual partners, it is primarily used by men who don't understand vaginas often because they've never seen one. Oh, burn. That's Urban Dictionary. Thank you. So. All right. Okay. Well, now I learned something new every day, guys. Roast that beef, that that's a nice way of saying the roast beef yeah, vagina. Typical roasty over there. Yeah. I'm going to say it. Yeah. I'm going to use both of those. Typical, my ex-wife. Roast. It's polite. Yeah. I'm mean, like, yeah, hey, you done riding that cock carousel, you fucking roasty. And she's going to be like. <laughs> you got two new fucking breaks. You got to like say it with like a one... cockney accent. So it sounds like some cockney shit. <laughs> you, want to, you want me to do that right now? Yeah, Oi, yeah. You stupid cunt. You done riding the cock carousel, you fucking roasty. I, you, you know what I mean? You fucking roasty. You fucking roasty. Get in the kitchen and make me a Yorkshire pudding. <laughs> <laughs> These are good, I, man. I want a Yorkshire pudding and some roasty. <laughs> <laughs> Get off that fucking cock carousel and make me some pudding, you bitch. <laughs> I'm literally <laughs> I'm literally writing cock carousel down and roasties. These will be used. Uh, <laughs> These will be applied and applied generously and liberally in like the horsey sauce on a roasty. <laughs> oh, the burn. That might burn. That might burn. <laughs> That's the might. <laughs> might. <laughs> but yeah, I looked up roasty. What is a roasty in England? Beloved by the Brits, completely foreign to Americans. What is this roasty of which you speak? In simple terms, roasted potatoes. See, my computer knows me. And no, it's like, it, oh, you're looking for, for, for spuds, right, bud? Now you have like, to you scroll know. down further. Like, I have to scroll hey, down further. you talking about potatoes there? <laughs> and it says step-by-step -step Swiss potato roasty recipe, but it's R-O-S-T-I. What's funny is here, ladies and gentlemen, if you, I'm sorry you can't see this. This is going to be on the video that nobody watches. <laughs> Share the screen with you right now. Look at this bad boy. Like, they literally use... A roast beef sandwich with Arby's written underneath to describe a vagina, <laughs> someone's vagina. I mean, you with know her. A, a, this is a beef and cheddar, no less. Ugh. Yes. yes. Ugh. Yeah, get it. Out if of you here. think about the beef and cheddar, like, but in a vagina sense, like you're trying to say, like, her vagina has cheese, which, like, that means it's not clean. 
and it just makes me want to throw up. Well, well, yeah. I, I think you're more saying that she just has some big old dangly meat curtains. Yeah, like like it's like like a fistful of roast beef, you know. It's a rough day out, man. Rough day right, out. Right? I, I learned a lot today, and this like we're not even really through a lot of the material here that we have to go through. So this all started with tornadoes that killed two people. Yeah. It started with tornadoes and death and ended on roasties. Roasties. <laughs> and then the cock. And we're not talking them. about nice, crispy potatoes. Yeah. Mash them up, fry them up. No. Put them in a stew. Yeah, with conies. With rabbits. <laughs> What's taters, precious? Potatoes. Yes, oh man okay so that's that's the more sad yeah so the tornado killed people i guess yeah that's terrible there's a tornado outbreak and apparently there's i only knew of my kid is really into this stuff like he he should have gone and been um been a meteorologist but unfortunately there's a lot of math that you need to do before you can use the automatic prediction systems with isobars and all that other good stuff. Yeah. Long division, if you will. Uh, we can thank the Arabs for that one. Uh, they also gave us zero. Yeah, we need zero. Yeah. I can only imagine doing like long division with Roman numerals. That would be a real bitch. I mean, that would be a long day out. Like, you know. Yeah. You know, XVII divided oh, by. Fuck that. Yeah, no, that's no, no. good. So I'd like to thank the Arabs for that uh, contribution, you know, the numbers that we have. We appreciate you. Yes, appreciate Um so yeah so he should have been a meteorologist but like again the math thing that's not really his thing but he explained to me that there are potentially three different alleys for tornadoes there's the traditional tornado alley Mm -hmm. which goes all the way through like north texas the panhandle of texas through oklahoma the plain states even a little bit of the sliver gets into like cincinnati stand Mm -hmm. up there because it's flat there's also dixie alley I didn't know Dixie Alley was a thing, but that's exactly where this tornado hit. And it happens all the time. Like there was a Tuscaloosa tornado that happened a couple of times, several different tornadoes that were disastrous, absolutely disastrous. And if you're into this sort of thing, one of the videos that I'm absolutely captivated by, there's a 2013 video that was done in HD of the El Reno tornado in El Reno, Oklahoma. It is the largest and fastest tornado that's ever been recorded in history a two and a half mile wide wedge tornado two and a half miles wide with, with wind up to 300 miles an hour i L- can't even fathom that there were four storm chasers that were killed by this thing i remember yeah uh, a father and son and two other guys that were in this fucking chevy cobalt four-door but they let's go storm chasing in the cobalt kids Come they on, thought guys. that they were like cutting but like the tornado was two and a like, half miles wide but like didn't it also kind of like shift its path somewhat as it well did, because it doesn't it didn't follow what the what would have been i guess the uh the what they predicted the path would be because it's a tornado kind of does whatever it wants yeah and it ate them it ate the cobalt yeah and again rule one if you have a chevy cobalt don't go to you shouldn't storm go chasing. storm chasing okay not even not even a toyota forerunner is going to cut the mustard on that one okay you need a tank that's what you need okay let's go storm chasing in my three-cylinder geo metro <laughs> <laughs> 
I've got new tires on it, okay? It's yeah. going to be fine, all right? It, it's a real storm chaser, if you know <laughs> yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, if you're interested in that, check that out. But Dixie Alley is very active. <laughs> Dixie Alley. It? You remember last year, that the one that really ate me up, dude, was the one that happened in uh, Mayfield, Kentucky, where the fucking workers weren't allowed to leave. Oh, uh, yeah. The candle factory, they wouldn't let the working people leave the floor. And this this should be a warning to anybody who's listening. When something is happening and your boss says, no, you have to work, and you feel as though you're in some sort of danger, whether that's a winter storm that's coming, just fucking leave because you know what call their bluff and be like fucking fire me then because i ain't hanging around this motherfucker and get in an accident or whatever because you're too dumb to understand that we're in fucking danger get the fuck out of there do not put yourself in danger fuck these people i hey listen they could be dead and all my biggest problem is i'm unemployed i could find another job yeah that's not a problem is it ideal not really but it beats death every single day of the week every time that one really bothered me that one really bothered me and these poor workers were told no just stay where you are you know everything will be fine uh at my previous place of employment there was a tornado warning in the city of akron Mm -hmm. and uh, we were told to shelter in place i literally got in my car and fucking drove home and then the director was like well we were told that you left i go you must be out of your mind if you think I'm going to die on this loading dock, you must be out <laughs> of your mind. Right. Fuck you. See ya. See ya. Not happening. So just like we had this, there's a train, there's uh, a major rail uh, that runs right next to that building that I worked at. And we used to have hazmat training. You get a load of this. So all the hazardous chemicals that you see in tanker, uh, 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 Mm. train cars Mm. that are tankers they're like okay well in the event of a derailment and mind you the track goes right by the dock and i and i looked at the health and safety cock and i said hold on a minute in the event of a derailment your next sentence is going to be shelter in place if there's toxic fumes and chemicals in the air he goes well yeah the idea is that we're going to shut the doors and we're going to close all of the interior doors i go so I'm going to run out of oxygen and I'm going to not be able to escape. And those fumes aren't going to go anywhere. They're going to come into the building where we're sheltering in place. I said, listen, guy, that's not going to happen with me either. If a train gets derailed, I am getting in my car trying to hold my breath or whatever it is. I'll die, but I'm not dying here. I'm, it's not going to happen. I'll go and look at the sky before I die. That's it. That, but I won't fucking die here on this dirty, disgusting floor with you morose motherfuckers here. It's not happening. Some of the the level, this is my problem too, and I was telling Angel about this. The older I've gotten, my tolerance for retarded behavior has dramatically decreased. And I mean by several orders of magnitude. Before I could laugh a lot of stuff off and be like, oh, what a moron. Now I'm actively like, you're going to get me killed. You are that fucking <laughs> stupid that you are going to end my existence on this planet. And I think that's where the road rage comes from. 
like I'm screaming at other drivers. I know that we all think we're the best drivers. I know a few people who admit that they're not good drivers. And I know a few people that ought to admit that they're not good drivers because they aren't. But some of the shit that happens on the fucking highway is egregious. It's terrifying. You know what I mean? And because, and I think the reason why road rage exists is because one small fucking mistake from the retard in front of you could end your existence right now. So I think that that's, but anyway, my tolerance for this retarded horseshit has dramatically decreased. And I, I've noticeably more agitated and irritable when it comes to this crap. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, those of you that are down in uh, Dixie Alley, I know we've got a couple of listeners down south. Get the fuck out of the building. Don't ever fucking listen to your boss. Get out of there. I don't care what the reason is. Fuck them. Fuck them in the ear. Fuck them in the other ear. We're out of here. Yeah, had those people from uh, 9-11 fucking evacuated, oh. they wouldn't be dead. Like, Go. when a plane crashes into a building before another plane crashes into your building, evacuate. Get the fuck out of there and go as far as you can in the opposite fucking direction of whatever that shit is. As far as you can. Run, if you can't fucking get to a vehicle to get the fuck out of Dodge, run, 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 run. Run until you can't fucking uh, continue to run and mm. then run some fucking more. Like, yeah. get the fuck out of there. You're not kidding. Uh, you're not kidding. And that just, I can't read it. I remember survivors from 9-11 saying everything is, that they were told by security, everything is fine. Go back to your office on like the 97th floor or whatever. Yeah, hey, you know what? A, a 757 just crashed into the other tower. But let me tell you something. Everything is fine. The situation is under control. <laughs> You know, I know it's raining debris on the streets, including uh, Saudi passports that are completely untouched, but whatever. Um, Titanium Saudi passports. <laughs> oh, shit, man. Uh, but go ahead and go back to work because that report that you're working on on that Excel spreadsheet, we need that by noon, okay? So before lunch. Fuck you. We'll see you right. later. So, yeah. So I agree with that. Now, shifting gears to that state up north. Um, this is an interesting article. Okay, uh, this is why Detroit residents pushed back against tree planting. Didn't know that this was a problem in the Rock City, that is Detroit, um, which has like more farmland than it did like 200 years ago, whatever it is, because, you know, nobody lives there because it's a shithole. Um, Detroiters are refusing city sponsored free trees. A researcher found out the problem. Okay, Ooh. a landmark report conducted by uh, the University of Michigan Environmental sociologist, environmental sociologist, that's a hell of a title, Dorsetta Taylor in 2014 warned of the arrogance of white environmentalists when they introduced green initiatives to black and brown communities. One black environmental professional, Taylor interviewed for the report, Elliot Payne, described experiences where green groups, quote, presume to know what's best for communities of color without including them in decision-making and planning process. I think a lot of the times it seems from the approach of, oh, we just go out and offer free tree plantings or engage in an outdoor activity. And if we just reach out to them, they will come, Payne told Taylor. In fact, this is exactly what was happening in Detroit at the time that Taylor's report came out. In 2014, the city was a few years deep into a campaign to reforest its streets after decades of neglecting to maintain its depleted tree canopy. A local environmental nonprofit called the Greening of Detroit it sounds like a porn of some sort. <laughs> the green. Uh, don't, don't, I don't, don't, know. don't know. Anyway, 
Oh, there was the classic porn called The Green Door. This is true. Maybe that's where I'm getting it from. Maybe that's where I'm getting it from. The Greening of Detroit was the city's official partner for carrying out that reforesting task, which it had started doing on its own when it was founded in 1989. By 2014, TGD had received additional funding to ramp up its tree planting service to the tune of 1,000 to 5,000 new trees per year. To meet that goal, it had to penetrate neighborhoods somewhat more aggressively than it had in the past and win more buy-in from the residents. Tree planters met stiff resistance. Roughly a quarter of the 7,500 residents they approached declined offers to have new trees planted in front of their homes. It was a high enough volume of rejections for such otherwise valuable service that University of Vermont researcher Christine Carmichael wanted to know the reasons behind it. She obtained data that the company collected or on the people who turned them down that visited Detroit to interview staff members and residents. What she found is that rejections had more to do with how the tree planters presented themselves and residents' distrust the city government than how residents felt about trees. You don't say. What do you know? Carmichael's findings with co-author Maureen H. McDonough were published in 2019 in the journal Society and Natural Resources. The residents Carmichael surveyed understood the benefits of having trees in urban environments. They provide shade and cooling, absorb air pollution, especially from traffic, increase property values, and improve, improve health outcomes. But the reason Detroit folks were submitting to no tree requests were rooted, very well done, you see that's good writing, were mm -hmm. rooted in how they have historically interpreted their, life, their lived experiences in the city, or what Carmichael calls heritage narratives. It's not that they don't trust the trees, they didn't trust the city. Why would they? Why, right? Like, why would why they? Why don't not you trust, trust the trees? trees? That was my favorite part of that article. Like, I started fucking cracking up laughing. We are trees. Yeah. Well, it's not that they didn't trust the trees. They just didn't trust the city. <laughs> small wonder. Right? Uh, yeah, small wonder. Uh, these are the stories that people from all walks of Detroit life tell themselves and each other about why city conditions are the way they are. The heritage uh, narratives that residents share about trees in Detroit were different from ones shared among the people in the city government and the company. A couple of African-American women Carmichael talked to linked the tree planting program to a painful racist moment in Detroit's history right after the 1967 race rebellion when the city suddenly began cutting down elm trees in bulk in their neighborhoods. The city did this as women understood it so that law enforcement and intelligence agents could better surveil their neighborhoods from helicopters and other high places after the urban uprising. The city was chopping down trees at a faster clip at this time, and the city was flying helicopters over the homes at one point to spray toxic DDT from above the trees. This is your, this is your government at work. And they still all vote fucking Democrat. Every single goddamn one of them. I, I, mm -hmm. Same fucking people that have been giving you a problem for 50 fucking years. It'll never change. Why were they doing that? Why were they voting Democrat? No, why were they doing the DDT? To um, kill people? No, well, <laughs> it, 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 probably. Wasn't it testing? Because DDT, also known as DEET, was in a lot of bug spray back in the day. Uh, if some of you recall correctly, they had to get DDT free bug spray for like mosquito, like off, for example, mm -hmm. the bug spray. So yeah, but it's it's not good for you. 
All right. Yeah. Well, okay. It's not like Asian orange, but it's not great. All right. You know well, I, mean? I didn't know why they were using it, but that's fine. I think so. Okay. However, the government stated reason for the mass tree choppings was that the trees were dying off from the Dutch elm disease, then spreading across the country. These were competing heritage narratives of the same event, the clearing away of trees in the 1960s. The two narratives are in conflict, but it was the women's version based on their life experiences that led to their decision to reject the trees today. It's not that they didn't trust the trees, they didn't trust the city. In this case, the women felt that after the race rebellion, the city just came in and cut down their trees, and now they want to just come in planting trees, said Carmichael. But they felt they should have a choice since they'll be the ones caring for the trees and raking up leaves when the planters leave. They felt that the decision regarding whether to cut down trees or plant new ones were being made by someone else, that they were going to have to deal with the consequences. There was a distrust not only from the city, but from of the tree planters as well, particularly considering how TGD staffed stepped to the people in the communities they were plotting on. The greening of Detroit had 50,000 volunteers from 2011 to 14, most of them white and not from Detroit. Rock City. By the way, the Latin translation for Detroit means trash. I don't know if anybody knows that. I didn't know that. Is that for real? Or are you fucking with me? <laughs> it's it's real. <laughs> it's for real. I don't believe you. Sure. What, you big lies. <laughs> Is it whale's vagina? Whale's vagina. <laughs> Is that what it means? Yeah, that's that's San Diego. Uh, the Welcome to Wales Vagina Rock City. <laughs> <laughs> Get up! Everybody gonna move their feet. Get down! Everybody gonna lose their mind in Whale Vagina Rock City. <laughs> oh man, this is good. The organization had just one community outreach person on staff. That outreach apparently did not include involving neighborhood residents in the planning of this urban forestry program. Hey, listen, we're going to do something nice for you, but we ain't asking, okay? We're going to go ahead. <laughs> we're going to rape your yards with our trees. <laughs> it's not non-consensual tree planting. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Oh, that's amazing. So I'm going to make a t-shirt that says Whale Vagina, Rock City. <laughs> I really do. That's, right. I, I feel like that's another T-shirt idea, Jay. Whale, whale vagina, Rock City. <laughs> Can we put on the back of and it? No one will understand it but us. It's our inside joke. Yeah. Can we put on the back of it? Get on the cock carousel, you rookie. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yes. Whale vagina, Rock City. Hop on the cock carousel, you fucking roasty. <laughs> <laughs> We're getting in the van and going to Whale Vagina, Rock City. <laughs> oh my God, that's that's brutal, that's brutal, and it's excellent. So, yeah, that's not good at all. Um, and I love it how they didn't literally talk to the people who it would be affecting. I think that that's amazing, uh, truly amazing. So I got sent this. This was not in the original notes today. Thanks to Todd the Gay for reaching out, whom we will discuss in a little bit. Um, this is from Ohio gun owners. Okay, so this does affect those of us who live down here in the Soviet motherland. We uh, it says moments ago we learned that House Bill. This is a cold read, by the way. He sent this to me. House Bill three eighty three, sponsored by Representative Kyle Kohler, 
is going to be voted on in the House Government Oversight Committee and then put on the House floor tomorrow for a full floor vote. Here's why. House Bill 383 is a total cover bill designed to make Ohio Republicans look tough on crime without actually doing anything about violent crime. Worse, HB 383 establishes the evil precedent in Ohio's legal system that inanimate objects like firearms are casual factors of criminal action, which is the exact basis of gun control argument. Make no mistake about it, there are plenty of laws already on the books for violent criminals to punish to be punished with. But their refusal to use those laws properly is not justification to keep layering on more laws, nor are they justified to use liberal logic in the process. After all, we've heard a thousand times from Bloomberg's Red Shirt Gun Control Brigade in committee hearings at the State House, gun violence is caused by the public's proximity to firearms. People shouldn't have guns, end quote. We aren't alone in our opposition to this bill. The Office of the Public, Ohio Public Defender did an excellent job in their opposition to HB 383, which you can read here. And as another opponent put it, HB 383 makes the mistake of targeting an object, that means a gun, rather than a criminal act. The carrying of a gun is not wrong. It is the use of a gun or knife or hammer or other blunt object or hands fist to commit violent crime that is wrong. The bill treats firearms different than any other object that are used to commit crime. That is anti-gun, not anti-crime. It is not good public policy, end quote. We could not agree more. House Republicans would be taking steps to reduce crime, like overhauling Ohio's defense, uh, Ohio self-defense laws or, or beaking or beefing up our weak constitutional carry law so that criminals are actually afraid again. They could also make sure that many of Ohio's most liberal Soros-backed prosecutors aren't letting violent criminals back onto the street. Instead, they are moving House Bill 383 at lightning speed to put to, as to punish people not for the crimes they commit, but rather for the mere fact they possess a firearm. It's absurd, focusing on the object instead of the criminal. It's the same logic used by the Marxist left. Please take action right now by sending your state representative a pre-written, pre-written, excuse me, I'm a man of class. I will write that motherfucker myself. I don't need anybody to tell me nothing. I'll write that motherfucker myself, whoever he is. Who is it? Who's in charge of our... Nobody knows. Okay. I, I really don't know. I know one person serving in the state house. I don't know. I don't care. That's... Yeah, I don't know. I don't care. I'm going to do whatever I want. No matter what they say, I'm still going to do me. Yeah. Okay, you do you, boo-boo. Um, My plan was to do that all along, boo-boo. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Um, so those of us in the Ohio motherland, I didn't know that our constitutional carry law was weak. What does that mean? Are there stipulations? Oh, you mean like I have to unload the magazine before I go to the range and I have to keep ammo and my weapons separate? Now, a lot of people are like, well, yeah, Jay, I mean, what's going to happen? I know, right? If you put them next to each other, the magazine like like magically begins to load itself into the weapon and then it begins shooting like mercilessly at children and old people and dogs. <laughs> that's that's what's going to happen. That's why you have to you got to keep them separated. Do you realize how old that song is? Like I do realize how old that song is. I it makes me feel old. Not good. When I remember I remember getting that on cassette. Oh yeah, yeah. Offspring Smash. I got that on cassette. 
I had that on cassette, and then I thought it was rad because Ixnay on the Ombre, when it came out, but I got that on CD. I, I was going to say, uh, ironically enough, Ixnay on the Ombre was my first CD. How about that? <laughs> yeah. Dude, I actually remember my first CD. It was the soundtrack to The Empire Strikes Back. That was my okay. first CD. All right. Respectable. Yep. Respectable. Oh, yeah. I mean, the Imperial March, I played on repeat. Christ only knows for how long. I still I remember the first CD player I had, man. It was the JVC with the detachable speakers. Ooh. Yeah. Hot shit. Oh, yeah. Boom, the, the, I remember. I remember. Style. I remember lugging that fucker up into the bathroom for shower tunes, man. <laughs> Dude, my parents had this old Fisher uh, stereo system. The turntable stopped working. And the tape deck kind of worked, but I figured out a way to rig up my disc man uh, so that I could run the disc man through uh, this Fisher stereo system. And they let me they let me have it. Right. So here I am getting ready for school during high school, like all the way, like from sophomore all the way to to like senior year. And every morning to get myself ready to go to that shithole, I would blast out like my parent. My father hated Metallica because that's all I listened to. And of course I listened to like the offspring and I listened to green day, but he couldn't tell the difference. Like everything was Metallica and he didn't like it. Um, <laughs> it, it it's loud and obnoxious apparently, but yeah. But I remember like one morning, like yeah, he must've been in rare form because I put on for whom the bell tolls and I fucking cranked that fight. And it was a proper stereo, like with floor speakers and everything mm -hmm. that fucker shook when I played it. And I just boom, 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 turn it down. <laughs> He was so fucking mad at me. And I'm like, listen, man, I got to get jazzed up to go to this horseshit school that y'all make me go to. So I, but eventually he left me alone as I got older. But yeah, I remember, dude, isn't that something we remember that shit? And I was telling Angel about that. She remembered too, that CDs, like, so here's, here's a CD, right? Here's a ghost CD. So mm -hmm. Actually, it's a bootleg. So it would have this entire security plastic case mm -hmm. around it. And you could like hold it like from down here, you could hold it like this. And then the, the old ones, actually, the case was like part of the art mm -hmm. of the CD. The reason why I know that, I'm going to go ahead and date myself. I had a Trapper Keeper. I also had a Trapper Keeper. And I had purchased the Injustice for All Metallica CD. And it had the album art on the actual box that held the CD. And I cut that fucker off and I fucking taped it on to like, I thought, and, and the kids in school were like, Oh, look at that. That's awesome. They thought it was hard because it was injustice for all. It wasn't the black Trapper album. Keeper. Trapper keeper on my seventh grade Trapper keeper, bitch rolling hard in 1992. Some of you weren't even born. I was seven. Yeah. I was 12. Yeah, the Trapper Keeper came later. It was after Trapper Keeper was probably already cool. 30 years ago. Yeah. It's some wild shit. Mm -hmm. it's not, this is not good, Chris. This is not no. good. This is I was going to say, I, I remember the store where my CD player was purchased from, which is Value City, which the department store no longer exists. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. I I remember stuff like that. I remember weird details. Like I can go through my comic book collection and tell you where each comic book was purchased. That's awesome. And I've got like a lot of fucking comic books. <laughs> I believe it. I believe it. Yeah, it's it's strange how some of those 
where you purchase these items are tied to the memory. Like that's all part of the memory. Like for me, it was Rainbow Records in uh, Rolling Acres Mall on the second floor by the Kaufman slash Macy's slash O'Neill's or whatever the fuck it was. Mm-hmm. Changed names a bunch of times. I only ever remember it being a Kaufman's. I don't remember O'Neill's. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was O'Neill's first way back in the day. And then it was um, Kaufman's. And then it became Macy's. Macy's. Yeah. Yep. And there was this huge glass chandelier that was still there after the mall was abandoned. I don't know what happened to it, uh, but it was pretty rad. And there was a luggage store that was on the second, on the first floor underneath the record store. And there was, uh, there was always people trying to get you to go into the store to buy luggage. And it's like, listen, I'm like 11. I, I don't need. <laughs> I'm 11. What do I need? Like- yeah. <laughs> you know what my friends and I are doing? We're going down to the tobacco store because the old man right. there doesn't care if we look at the porno bags. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't need luggage to store my pornography collection. That's under my mattress. Do you know who did have luggage to store their pornography? Brian S. Ah, uh, yes, oh. yes. He would take it into the bathroom like a businessman <laughs> to jerk off. Oh my god! <laughs> what a gem! What a gem that man is! Oh my yep. god! Yeah. Oh, speaking Absolutely of so when you think of hospice. What do you? What's the first thing that comes to mind? I'll go first. Um, end of time. Yeah, somebody's dying. Somebody's dying, right? Um, comfort, right? Making somebody comfortable for the last part, the last part of their earthly journey. Sadness. Yeah, uh, not good. Um, you have what six months or less to to go, whatever it is. So this is an interesting article. So this is uh, called How the Visionary Hospice Movement Became a For-Profit Hustle. Over the years, Marsha Farmer had learned what to look for. She drove back the back, back roads of rural Alabama. She kept an eye out for dilapidated homes and trailers, wheelchair ramps. Some days she'd ride the one-car ferry across the river to Lower Peachtree and other secluded hamlets where a few houses lacked running water and bare soil was visible beneath the floorboards. Other times she'd scan church prayer lists the names of families with ailing members. Farmer was selling hospice, which strictly speaking is for the dying. To qualify, patients must agree to forego uh, curative care and be certified by doctors as having less than six months to live. But at Acera Care, a national chain where Farmer worked, she solicited recruits regardless of whether they were near death. She canvassed birthday parties at housing projects and went door to door promoting the program to loggers and textile workers. She sent colleagues on uh, cadge rides on the uh, on the Meals on Wheels van, or to catch up uh, or to chat up veterans at the American Legion bar. We'd find rundown places where people were more on the poverty line. She told me, "You're looking for uneducated people, if you will, because if you're able to provide something to them and meet a need." Farmer, who has doe eyes and nonchalant smile, often wore scrubs on her sail routes, despite not having a medical background. That way, she said. I would automatically be seen as a help. She did not try to mention death in her opening pitch or even hospice if she could avoid it. Instead, she described an amazing government benefit that offered medications, nursing visits, nutrition, uh, nutritional supplements, and light housekeeping all for free. Why not try us just for a few days? She'd ask families glancing down at her watch as she'd been trained to do to pressure them into a quick decision. Clever. 
Once a prospective prospective patient expressed interest, a nurse would assess whether any of the person's conditions fit. Can I can I pause you for sure. a second? This is why I don't like it when people look at their watches. Oh, really? Because it bothers me because it's something like you don't have the time. I need to hurry up and do something. I need to, you know, uh, be more expedient and I'm wasting your time. It's now become a thing about um, like it's like a control thing and I don't like it. I've never liked it my whole life. I've never liked it. Okay. All right. Well, that I guess that would make sense. Sure. Once a prospective patient, an interest nurse would assess any of the person's condition fit or could be made to fit a fatal prognosis. The black belt, a swath of the deep south that includes parts of Alabama, has some of the highest rates of heart disease, diabetes, and emphysema in the country. On paper, Farmer knew it was possible to finesse a chronic symptom like shortness of breath into proof of terminal decline. When farmers started out in the hospice business in 2002, it felt like less like a sales gig than a calling. At 30, she'd become a community educator or marketer at, a hosp- at Hospice South, a regional chain that had an office in her hometown, Monroeville, Alabama. There's Alabama, Green, not Greenbow. Uh, Monroeville was the kind of place where, if someone went into hospice, word got around and people sent big goods. She often asked patients to write cards and make tape recordings for milestones, birthdays, anniversaries, weddings that they may not live to see. She began. She became an employee of the month, and within a year, was promoted to executive director of the branch, training a staff of her own to evangelize for the end of life care. Things began to change in 2004. Hospice South was bought by Beverly Enterprise, the second largest nursing home chain in the country, and got folded into one of its subsidiaries, Acera Care. Not before long. Not long before the sale, Beverly had agreed to pay a five million dollar criminal fine, 175 million dollar civil settlement. After being accused of Medicare fraud, its stock value had slumped and Beverly CEO had decided that expanding its empire of hospices would help the company attract steadier revenue and high growth, high margin areas of healthcare services. Less than two years later, as part of the wave of consolidations in the long term care industry, Beverly was sold uh, to a private equity firm, which rebranded as Golden Living. Boy, I hate those fucking play on words. Mm-hmm. God. It might be counterintuitive to run an enterprise that's wholly dependent on clients who aren't long for this world, but companies in the hospice business can expect some of the biggest returns for the least amount of effort of any sector in American health care. Medicare pays providers a set rate per patient per day, regardless of how much help they deliver, since most hospice care takes place at home and nurses aren't required to visit more than twice a month. It's not difficult to keep overhead low and to outsource the bulk of labor to unpaid family members, assuming that the fa- that willing family members are at hand. Up to a point, the way Medicare has designed the hospice benefit reward providers for recruiting patients who aren't imminently dying. Long hospice stays translate into larger margins. And stable patients require few expensive medications, fewer expensive medications, excuse me, and supplies than those in the final throes of illness. Although two doctors must initially certify that a patient is terminally ill, she can be recertified uh, as such and again and again and again. Almost immediately after Sarah took over, farmer supervisors set steep targets for the number of patient marketers had to sign up and presented those who met admission quotas with cash bonuses and perks, including popcorn machines and massage chairs. Employees couldn't hit their, who couldn't hit their numbers were fired. 
Farmer uh, prided herself on being competitive and liked to say, I could sell ice to an Eskimo. She should have gone into politics. But at, as her remit expanded to include the management of Esera Care Outpost in Foley and Mobile, Alabama, she began to resent the demand to bring in more bodies. <laughs> Before meeting with her supervisor, Jeff Bowling, she stayed up late crunching data on car wrecks, cancer, and heart disease to figure out how many people in her territories might be exp expected to die that year. When she showed bowling, the numbers didn't match what she uh, called his ungodly quotas. He was unmoved. If you can't do it, she recalled him telling her, we'll find someone who can. Farmer's biggest problem was that their patients weren't dying fast enough. Some fish drove tractors and babysat grandchildren. Their longevity prompted concern around the office because of a complicated formula that governs the Medicare benefit. The federal government recognizing that an individual patient may not die within the predicted six months effectively demands repayment from hospice when the average length of stay of all patients exceeds six months. Farmers Company, like many of its competitors, have found ways to game the system and keep its money. One tactic was to dump or discharge patients with overlong stays, over the long stays, excuse me. The industry euphemism is graduated from hospice. Through the, though the patient experience is often more akin to getting expelled, losing diapers, pain medication, wheelchair, nursing care, and hospital grade bed that a person may not otherwise be able to afford in 2007, according to farmers calculations around the time, 70% of the patients served by her mobile, off, mobile office left hospice alive. By the way, I'm putting it on the record. If I ever get to the point where a fucking wheelchair and diapers are involved, I have joey bag of donuts on standby to fucking assassinate me from a distance i'm not even kidding i wouldn't put my family through that fucking shit like that's it's the like i said when christopher and i talking about 1992 being 30 fucking years ago and you know you're like oh shit it's a long time ago because it, it really doesn't feel like it's a long time ago but it was a long fucking time ago mm -hmm. like that like at the end of the day the the answer for what is it tyler durden says the survivability rate for everyone it goes to zero you're staring down the barrel. Now, most of us want to go out fast, right? We want to get the fuck out of here, you know, turn, like turn off a light. Don't, that's it. It's over. However, more often than not, it's a lengthy illness. I think Jack Kevorkian was a genius. And I think more respect should have been paid to him. Like the assisted suicide business. You don't want to put your family through all of that shit. I, are you out of your fucking mind? I can't even get my kid to take out the fucking trash. He's going to fucking wheel me around and change my ass. Not happening. Not happening. I'm definitely not going to have my wife do it. I mean, that's just ridiculous. It's just ridiculous. So if we got to go, we got to go. So I'll carry on here. Um, another way to hold on to med. So again, this is gaming your federal tax dollars. By in, in, in one of the most sinister ways that you could think of, right? Another way to hold on to Medicare money was to consistently pad the roster with new patients. One day in 2008, facing the possibility of a repayment, Sarah Care asked some of its executive directors to get double-digit admits and to have the kind of day that will go down in the record books. A follow-up email just an hour later urged staff to go around the barriers and make, make this happen now. Your families need you. That summer, Bowling pushed Farmer to lobby oncologists to turn over their last breath patients, in quotation marks. Patients, those with only weeks or days to live. At the time, Farmer's 59-year-old mother was dying of uh, meta metastatic colon cancer. 
Yikes. Although Farmer knew that the service might do the last, uh, might do those last breath people good, it enraged her that her hospice was chasing them cynically to balance its books. The pressure was so relentless that sometimes she felt like choking someone, but she had two small children and couldn't quit. Her husband, who had been the co her co-worker at Sarah Care, had already done so. Earlier that year, after fights with bowling and other supervisors about quotas, he had left for a, low paying, a lower paying job at Verizon. Good for him. Farmer's confidant at work, Dawn Richardson, shared her frustration. A gifted nurse who was, as Farmer put it, as country as a turnip, Richardson hated admitting people who weren't appropriate or dumping patients who were. She was a single mom, though, and she needed a paycheck. One evening early in 2009, the two happened, uh, happened upon another, another way out. The local news was reporting that two nurses at Southern Care, a prominent Alabama-based competitor, had accused the company of stealing taxpayer dollars by enrolling ineligible patients in hospice. Southern Care, which admitted no wrongdoing, settled with the Justice Department for nearly $25 million dollars, and the nurses, as whistleblowers, had received a share of the sum, $4.9 million, to be exact. Farmer Richardson had long felt uneasy about what Sarah Care asked them to do. Now they realize what they were doing might be illegal, you don't say? They decided to call James Barger, a lawyer who had represented one of the Southern Care nurses. That March, he helped Farmer Richardson file a whistleblower complaint against the Sarah Care and Golden Living in the Northern District of Alabama, accusing them of Medicare fraud. The case would go on to become the most consequential lawsuit in the hospice industry had ever faced. The philosophy of hospice was imported to the United States in the 1960s by Dame Cecily Saunders, an English doctor and social worker who had grown appalled by the wretched habits of big, busy hospitals where everyone tiptoes past the bed and dying soon learned to pretend to be asleep. That's sad. The counterpractice, which he refined at a Catholic clinic for the poor in East London, was to treat a dying patient's total pain. Physical suffering, spiritual needs, and existential disquiet. In a pilot program, Saunders prescribed terminally ill patients cocktails of morphine, cocaine, and alcohol, whiskey, gin, or brandy, depending on which they preferred. Early results were striking. Before and after photos of cancer patients showed the formerly anguished figures knitting scarves and raising toasts. You're high as fuck. So, yeah, I mean, you're dying. Who gives a shit, right? Load them up. Mm -hmm. Load them the fuck up. Uh, Saunders' vision went mainstream in 1969. The Swiss-born uh, psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross published a groundbreaking study on death and dying. The subjects in her account were living their final days in a Chicago hospital, and some of them described how lonely and harsh it felt to be in an intensive care unit separated from family. Many Americans came away from the book convinced that end-of-life care in hospitals was inhumane. Kubler-Ross and Saunders, like their contemporaries in the women's health, and deinstitutionalization movements push for greater patient autonomy, in this case for people to have more control over how they would exit the world. The first American hospice opened in Connecticut in 1974. By 1981, hundreds more hospices had started, and soon after, President Reagan recognized potential federal savings. Many people undergo unnecessary expensive hospitalizations just before they die and authorize Medicare to cover the cost. Forty years on, half of all Americans die in hospice. I didn't even know that. Half of all Americans die in hospice care. Most of these deaths take place at home. Mm -hmm. When it's done right, the program allows people to experience as little pain as possible and to spend meaningful time with their loved ones. Nurses stop by to manage symptoms, 
Aides assist with bathing, medications, and housekeeping. Social workers help families over bureaucratic hurdles. Clergy offer what comfort they can. And bereavement counselors provide support in the aftermath. This year, I spoke about hospice with more than 150 patients, families, hospice employees, regulators, attorneys, fraud investigators, and end-of-life researchers, and all of them praised its vital mission. But many were concerned about how easy money and the lack of regulation had given rise to an industry rife with exploitation. In the decades since Saunders and her fellows spread their radical concept across the country, hospice has evolved from a constellation of charities, mostly reliant on volunteers, into a $22 billion juggernaut funded almost entirely by taxpayers. Once again, for-profit providers made up 30% of the field at the start of the century. Today, they represent more than 70%, and between 2011 and 2019, research shows the numbers of hospice owned by private equity firms tripled. The aggregate Medicare margins for for-profit providers are three times that of their nonprofit counterparts. Under the daily payment structure, a small hospice that bills just for 20 patients at the basic rate could take in more than a million dollars a year. A large hospice billing for thousands of patients can take in hundreds of millions. Those federal payments are distributed in what essentially is an honor system. Ha ha ha. Although the government occasionally requests more information, occasionally, it generally trusts the providers will submit accurate claims for payment, a model that critics deride as pay and chase. Gene Stone, who worked for years as a program integrity senior specialist at the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, said that hospice was a particularly thorny sector to police for three reasons. No one wants to be seen as limiting an important service. It's difficult to retrospectively judge a patient's eligibility, and no one wants to talk about the end of life. Although a quarter of all people in hospice enter it only in their final five days, most of the Medicare spending on hospice is for patients with extended six stays of six months. In 2018, the Office of Inspector General at the Department of Health and Human Services estimated that the inappropriate billing by hospice providers had cost taxpayers hundreds of millions of dollars. Stone and others I spoke to believe that figure to be far higher. Uh, some uh, hospice firms bribe physicians to bring them new patients by offering all expense paid trips to Las Vegas nightclubs, complete with bottle service and private security details. The former mayor of Rio Bravo, Texas, who was also a doctor, received outright kickbacks. Other audacious for-profit players enlist family and friends to act as make-believe clients, lure addicts with the promise of free painkillers, dupe people into the program by claiming that it's free home health care or steal personal information to enroll phantom patients. A 29-year-old pregnant woman learned that she'd been enrolled in Revelation Hospice in the Mississippi Delta, which at one time discharged 93% of its patients alive, only when she, vis she visited her doctor for a blood test. In Frisco, Texas, according to the FBI, a hospice owner tried to evade the Medicare repayment problem by instructing his staff to overdose patients who were staying on the service too long. He texted a nurse about one patient, quote, he better not make it tomorrow or I will blame you, end quote. The owner was sentenced to more than 13 years of prison fraud and a plea deal that made no allegations about the pain a patient's death. First and foremost, I'd have had that motherfucker executed, executed for doing that to somebody. You have it in writing. You have a text. The patient better, he better not make it to tomorrow. If you send that to anybody else under any other circumstance and someone dies, you're getting brought up on fucking murder. You will get brought up on fucking murder. This is insane. This is, this is absolutely out of control insane. That's why they need to legalize taking people into the woods and leaving them there. Yeah. yeah that's it. That, that's it. This is insane. 
Uh, I'll have this article in the show notes in case any of you are really interested. And it goes on for a lengthy bit, and I've already covered quite a bit of it. But um, even on your way out, somebody's got to get extorted. Yeah. Even on your way out. You have to watch people. You have to manage them. You have to watch them. You can't let, like, any motherfucker that wants to be skeevy, that don't want to do shit right, they're going to try to get away with something. They're going to do something to you. You got to fucking watch your back and you got to watch your family's back. That's it. That's well said. Um, yeah, check it out if you're interesting. I find that uh, sort of thing. Uh, and again, you're paying for it, so you might as well take a look at it. It's your money, you know. Um, that's it for this week. I don't have anything else. Does anybody else have anything they want to talk about? I'll start with you, Christopher, my good friend. Nope, I'm good. All right. And what about you, Angel? Do you have anything else that you would like to mention? Uh, no, I just want to remind our listeners that if you're looking to view the video content of this episode, you need to head on over and mosey on over to BitChute as YouTube is an asshole. And uh, I have to wait. I think it's January something until the second strike goes away before I'm going to post anything because I really don't need like trouble and then our content on there being taken off um because they're literally taking and flagging people's content like you could just we could be reading an article about you know the coronavirus right and it's literally a legitimate article like and they're like you're spreading misinformation and i'm like there's no misinformation we're reading a fucking news article and like they want to have a go with me so like i'm and they they don't listen you you try to reject the the you know or you know appeal it and they reject it so go to bit shoot that's all all right i appreciate that and yes it's been a long tough road over at the youtubes and we have a lot more uh a lot more views on bit shoot um I'm I'm a fan of it, even though a lot of the content on there is like heavily anti-Semitic. I don't know. That's but, bullshit. Well, you know what, man? It's teach their own. Like I think that all formats, all platforms should be open for people to talk about whatever they want, even if I don't like it. It doesn't really matter. Um, so that's it from us this week. So again, I'd like to thank uh, Ray Fava, Team Mandalore, I Pain Akron, and of course AgorasNexus.com for their sponsorship of the show. I'd like to thank our patrons. Uh, new B-Side comes out with uh, the, the episode. Um, so it's only two bucks a month. If you've got an extra two quid laying around, throw it our way. You get extra content. I've, we've had our friends uh, and patrons come on to the show. We've had some really good bonus material on there. By the way, uh, we should have a guest a week from today that you're all very familiar with. Uh, he has uh, written another book. And he will be on to talk about it with us, friend of ours uh, down in Florida, um, on the the western portion of the Dong of Florida, um, the shaft, mid shaft, as uh, Christopher put it, mid shaft of Florida. So we're looking forward to talking with our friend. Those of you that know, we've announced it on the Facebook page uh, where we're most active. I did re- I did tweet out the show uh, for the first time in a long time. I've been trying to stay off Twitter for a myriad of reasons. Um, but I find myself getting sucked back in no matter what. It's kind of like getting closer to the event horizon of a black hole. Eventually it's just gonna grab you. You're not gonna be able to escape. Um, but uh, I appreciate all of you. Thank you very much for hanging out with us. If, again, if you have any ideas, let us know. You want anything, us to talk about anything, 
please do let us know if you have something interesting you would like to discuss and you want to be a guest. Don't be afraid to get a hold of me. I'm very easy to get a hold of. Uh, but uh, ladies and gentlemen, of course, what would be a use guys in that podcast episode without covering some of the most important items in your day, which is your stink and smell. Now, for those of us in the Northeast Ohio uh, Soviet Socialist Republic, it's a bit of a windy day today. Yeah, uh, very, very windy. I took the dog out. We almost got blown over. And that's kind of hard to do with a man of my size. <laughs> um, but a powerful wind came through today. Very powerful, strong gusts. And I was thinking to myself, you know, I'm so grateful that I don't smell bad because that wind could carry my stink with it and perhaps smack somebody in the face <laughs> while they're doing who knows what. They're getting in the car all of a sudden, boom. They get a hefty waft of swamp ass or whatever crap you have going on, Mm-mm. and they pass out in the driveway. And like, what happened? He was assassinated by what? That guy stink over the hill. Yes, it's not. It's not a good situation. It's not. So may I please, I, I beseech you, to go to AkronApothecary.com and check out my friend Todd's very gay soap, uh, handmade, cold pressed, made from a very very supple, precious gay hands for your supple inviting ass if you've got the swamp crotch if you've got the ball vinegar you got the under tit sweat fat fold issues you got like you know your own terrarium growing in your under gut whatever it is todd's gay soap can solve all that also ladies and gentlemen let's not forget that big holidays are coming your way right a lot of gathering going to be going on during christmas time Typically, people come over for the you know big you know we're ham people. Everybody on the show are ham people for Christmas. We feel that that is a matter of propriety that we do ham on the Christmas. You're going to be invited over. Let's say hey, you know the special someone you've been fucking for a couple of months. You know you didn't make the Thanksgiving or whatever it is you were studying for. God only knows whatever it is that you were doing, but you're finally getting invited over to the big Christmas dinner, and you're sitting down at that nice table, the linen tablecloth. You got all the food out. But along with those sweet smells of uh, ham and potatoes and, you know, none of that green bean casserole, I could tell you that much. Maybe some of that Waldorf salad sitting around. But all of a sudden, the stink begins to mingle with the nice smells of Christmas dinner. And it's your ass because you washed with a detergent that didn't last long enough. And that's on you. No getting laid for you, not impressing the parents or the extended family. It's bad news. Ladies and gentlemen, do not run the risk. We have something that can cure these problems. Todd's Gay Soap from AkronApothecary.com. It is medicine for you. It is the rotor-rooter of stink. And most importantly, Todd's Gay Soap is... (laughs) Yes. So check it out. Thank you very much, everybody. We appreciate you very much. Again, use guys at gmail.com. Let me know. And um, I don't know, man. I, I, I hope you're all doing okay. Watch out for that wind. It's a real son of a bitch today. It's a real problem. So um, have a great week, and we'll uh, we'll talk soon, okay? Okay. All right. Bye. Bye. Gorlami.